0: Welcome
1: to Good Life Project, where we take you behind the scenes for in-depth, candid conversations with artists, entrepreneurs, makers, and world shakers.
2: Here's your host, Jonathan Fields. Hi, I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. So my guest today is Sarah Gottfried, who's the author of a really fascinating book called The Hormone Cure. She's also a physician and a biohacker. Um, is that kind of how you would still describe yourself to a certain extent?
1: I would, although I'd say biohacker feels so masculine to me. I, and it I, really
2: does. Right? Like, there's a lot of machismo in that word.
1: There is. So I, I'm looking for a more sacred feminine Have you figured term for, anything for it. Out I haven't. Okay. Can you come up with something?
2: Hmm. Well, I'll think about it okay, now. Okay, good. But it is interesting, though, because um, l- let's kind of deconstruct what this thing called biohacker is or biohacking is also, because at least in the world that I live in and and apparently the world you live in, it's kind of, it's popping up all over the place right now. And it almost feels like it represents a movement to reclaim a certain sense of control over your health, your life, your performance, all this different stuff. Take me a little bit about into what it is for you and how you bring it to the world.
1: Sure. Well, biohacker, I think of biohackers as being mostly citizen scientists and I know you have a fondness for citizen science. I do. So I I think of it as leveraging whatever means possible. You know, medical information, the Internet brings that so easily within our reach. Genetics, um, laboratory testing, there's so much direct-to-consumer laboratory yeah. testing we can do now. And And figuring out, okay, what's the best path for me? I'm not going to buy into this broken medical system that tells me I should take an antidepressant when I feel like crap. So what are the alternatives? Like, how can I figure out my dashboard of the needle movers?
2: Yeah, and I think it's so interesting too that that there does seem to be, I don't know what it's being driven by, I don't know whether it's frustration with a system that doesn't seem to be serving certain fairly chronic things all that well, or maybe that it's that combined with like what you just said, there now seems to be just so much more access, ready access to, um, being able to go direct to get our own metrics. I mean, it's, it's kind of frustrating. Actually, I live in New York state and we can't actually get direct blood information.
1: Yeah. What's up with that? I don't don't, understand. I don't know. I mean, I want to change it.
2: Great services. Like you have to go to New Jersey or (laughs) Connecticut, I think where it's okay. I can go and get all my own blood work done and then look at the metrics. But in New York, we still can't do that. But, but I think in a lot of places it's really changing in a pretty profound way. And it's sort of like, you know, if you look at yourself as an N of one, you know, like Rather than this is the average information for the average person, well, it may or may not be relevant to me. And now I can get the data myself and know it's a game changer for a lot of people.
1: It's a total game changer. And I love that you said N of one because you just hit upon what I would call... Evidential hierarchy.
2: What's that? (laughs) Which is so cool, right? Because,
1: you know, when you look at, when you look at, you know, why don't we take antidepressants as an example? When you look at an intervention like taking antidepressants, which I think are way oversubscribed, you know, one in four American women is taking an antidepressant over the age of 40, one in seven men. And these are people who are getting treated for exactly the wrong reasons. Like it works with severe depression, but most people have mild to moderate symptoms and there's a way better way of getting into root cause analysis. But there's this idea when you look at science and whether taking a drug is a good idea or even taking a supplement or changing your hormone levels, testosterone, estrogen, for instance, you want to have good evidence behind it so that you're not causing harm. And so the evidence generally, you know, the best standard is a randomized trial that has the least uh, bias. But even better than a randomized trial is an N of one experiment. Where, for instance, you try rhodiola to manage your stress hormone cortisol, and you try it for six weeks, and you compare it to six weeks without it. That's the ideal experiment. It's not population-based, which is what we've been doing in medicine for so long.
2: Yeah. And I, and I think, I mean, it's so fascinating to me that um, that there the, the just hasn't been more of it sooner. Yeah. Um, but I think also, you know, we, I think now it's like what we said now we have so much more access to information. We have so much more access to getting our own data for our own, to run our own experiments. And I think, again, it's bundled with this pervasive high level frustration with a lot of chronic symptomology. Um, you know, you're a physician, right? So I'm, I'm not going to knock and I'm sure you're not going to knock, you know, traditional medicine. It's great for a lot of things. Oh,
1: I'll knock it. <laughs> so, so,
2: so at the same time, there are a lot of chronic things that it just doesn't seem, um, to be, and to be working for. And, and so here's a curiosity of mine, okay? Um, because you live in a community that I don't have access to the inner sanctum. Um, I wonder very often from within the community of doctors. Now you're the voice of the community of doctors, right? Like, the
1: mainstream doctors. Right,
2: right. Um, <laughs> do you Do you feel that there's any kind of growing sense that um, we see that people are, are going and seeking outside intervention, not the stuff that they've come to us for because what we're doing isn't working as effectively as possible. So they're going, they're trying other things, they're running their own experiments, they're trying supplements, they're doing different things, they're changing their nutrition mm-hmm. and, and viewing that as food. And then they're having really profound results mm-hmm. and coming back to us. But physicians are bound by certain guidelines mm-hmm. that they don't have control over. And they literally can't do those things because it wouldn't be within the ethical bounds of what they can do. And I, I wonder whether there's a growing frustration within the medical community, um, around that dynamic.
1: Yeah. Great question. And I, we could go in so many different directions. And I, I would say, you know, let's go back to Hippocrates who said, let food be thy medicine. Let, you know, medicine be thy food. And I think that we have gotten so far away from that basic precept. You know, we all took the Hippocratic Oath when we became physicians, and yet I went to Harvard Medical School. I had 30 minutes of nutrition education. You know, Andy Weil went to Harvard Medical School a little bit before me. He just turned 70 or 71, and he had 30 minutes of nutrition. So, yes, it's outside of the purview of mainstream medicine, But I think that's wrong. Mm. And there's this long tradition, I think, in medicine of patriarchy. And I would say that biohacking, this citizen scientist takeover, is really about reclaiming our power and saying, okay, I want to work collaboratively with a physician, but I don't want to turn my power over to them Mm. and say, okay, I'm stressed out, I'm bitchy what you got for me. And, you know, the first option is to take a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. Like we should be going back to Okay, what's really going on? Like let's have a longer conversation. Now, the average appointment with a physician in the US is about 7 minutes. Wow. It's very hard to do a root cause analysis, which is why I think it's so exciting that we're at this tipping point where we've got you know, the growing discontent with mainstream medicine together with the access that you're describing with the internet.
2: So, and I gotta kind of imagine a lot of doctors are really frustrated um, by sort of yeah. like the fact, I mean, I can't imagine that um, the average visit being seven minutes is a function of physicians wanting the average visit to be seven minutes.
1: Oh, right. It's totally the economics. You know, if, you, if you're trying to survive, you know, pay off your student loans You have to pack your schedule. And some people have control over how much time they have with their patients. But when I finished residency, I decided to work at a health maintenance organization. I had this illusion that it would be better for my quality of life, that I wouldn't give up nights and weekends compared to the academic job I was offered at UCSF. And ultimately I was I was in a factory. Like I was seeing 30 to 40 patients a day. I was so burned out at the end of the day, I would, you know, like barely slog home. I was a working mom in my thirties and I, I just was stressed out of my mind.
2: So you're a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> stressed out of your mind.
1: Yeah. How is that and, good?
2: Which seems like there's, a, I mean, there seems like there's a, a lot of that in the industry is because I guess there's so, there's so many constraints and so much pressure and so many limitations that are coming from so many directions now. Um, and you bundle that with, you know, like a growing question about the efficacy of certain treatment modalities. It's got to be a tough profession to be in now.
1: It's a tough profession. I mean, I remember being told when I was first wanting to become a doctor that I could become a plumber and like make more money. Like, <laughs> like it's not about the money. It's really about being of service. But I, I think that there are a lot of constraints and I, I don't mean to only Defend physicians, but there's a very high burnout rate. I mean, I think if you look at any service profession, teachers, nurses, doctors, super high burnout rate and physicians have some of the highest.
2: Yeah. But then if you flip well, I guess it's interesting because in New York, the phenomenon is is a little different in that it's increasingly difficult to find physicians who are actually taking.
0: Yes. (laughs) Except, and
2: so, you know, I, I know a number of physicians over the last couple of years who are friends, um, who have, like, they didn't want to walk away from sort of like the payment system, but they felt like to actually treat on the level that made them feel like they were doing what they were here to do, felt like they had to. Um, and th- their fees went up dramatically. Mm-hmm. And, but it also now, so they, you know, they don't love the fact that they can't, they can no longer treat a certain group of people sure. many that they really wanted to treat. And some of them will continue to volunteer a certain chunk of time or go to clinics, stuff like that. But you know, all of a sudden, now you've got forty-five minutes to sit down and just have a conversation, um, and move beyond sort of like the you know the seven minutes and done. Um, but I think also, you know, as we're all patients at some point, we've got to own responsibility for that to a certain extent, also. You know, it's yes. not just on the docs or on the system.
1: <laughs> well, that's right. I mean, that's that's the disruption to patriarchy. No. That I think when patients really step into their power and see this as a partnership and a collaboration. That's when you get grace. Like, that's when health starts to happen and you receive it. And you, you know, you don't have to be an official biohacker. I, I feel like, uh, I've got Tim Ferriss, like, on one shoulder here, you know, sort of one of the original biohackers, maybe Dave Asprey on the other shoulder. (laughs) But, you know, the, I think when, when you're not turning over your power to a clinician, when you really own it for yourself and you really own your true, um, Body awareness, and you bring that to the conversation, that's when it changes health. Like, that's when you see dramatic transformation. And I, you know, my plug is don't wait for the cancer diagnosis. Like, don't wait until you hit a wall. I want to really, I want to change that conversation so that people buy into prevention. They buy into the way that they eat, move, think, and supplement, and they change it so that they're really in integrity. And they're not saying first thing in the morning, okay, I'm not going to drink a bottle of wine with my husband tonight, or I'm not going to have, you know, the three chocolate chip cookies that are in the mm-hmm. freezer. And then they do it. They're in integrity that day with how they most want to eat and move and feel and think and supplement.
2: Yeah, and I, the interesting, thing, it sounds like okay, that sounds great. <laughs> like why aren't we all doing it? Yeah. You know, but the reality is also, I think a lot of, I think a lot of the reasons why, you know, like prescriptions are written. Um, it's because people just want that, mm-hmm.
0: they you know, want the it's quick like, fix.
2: just give me the pill. So if you tell somebody and like, so I'm so curious how these conversations unfold with you and patients, like somebody comes in, right. And all, like, well, I guess if they're coming to you for the first, in the first place, they're already kind of in a different place. But, um, you know, so many people live in a world now where, they wake up, and from the time they open their eyes to the time they, they close their eyes at night, number one, it's a crazy long day. Mm-hmm. They're massively scheduled, overscheduled, up against deadlines. They're trying to manage family and life and work. Um, and then they come, and you're like, okay, you can have a pill, which is going to you know, kind of mask the symptoms um, and make you feel better to a certain extent, um, or you can... Change the way you're eating, you can build mindfulness, you can, you know, meditate, you can exercise, you can invest a substantial amount of of time into profound lifestyle change, you know, to go past the symptom. A lot of people probably just don't want to do that.
1: (laughs) Totally, totally. I mean, I I think the purpose of life is to awaken,
2: Mm.
1: and this is part of awakening. And this is the compliance part of awakening, yeah. right? Where I think it is a hard sell. But I also think that, you know, that crazy busy person that you're describing is suffering.
2: I agree totally.
1: And they're learning from, you know, they, some pain may be the way that they learn. But I'd much rather that they learn from joy. And I think you have a choice. So if, you know, and I, I have so much compassion for that person who feels stress out of their minds, you know, didn't sleep well last night, get up in the morning. First thing you think about is a cup of coffee and, you know, and then you're off to the races. Cortisol's running the show. cortisol's is the main stress hormone. But I would also say, you know, I've lived it. Like I felt that way in my mid thirties and I had to really architect my life in a different way. So that was a big, you know, surrender point for me.
2: But. So let's kind of dive into um, the compliance word that you used.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah.
2: It's interesting. One of the first um, conversations that we ever filmed was with Dan Ariely, who, you know, like, his professional life is messing with people uh-huh. <laughs> to see how they behave. <laughs> like, he just comes up with all sorts of crazy experiments to see how people respond, how they behave. And one of the conversations that we got on was the idea of compliance and health compliance in particular and how brutally hard it is over long term and one of the things that he brought up was he was saying how um if there is not some sort of visual or visceral um reminder that's there and present every day to say you've got to keep behaving a certain way Mm. it becomes really hard And it's one of the hardest things for anybody to sort of to crack um is how do you actually inspire somebody Mm -hmm. to create long-term sustained behavior change i guess it's one yeah, and I'm sure you know this stat better than me. I'm curious if it's true. I've, I've always heard that uh, the average person who has um, a heart attack, has surgery, comes back, they go through cardiac rehab. But then, and they, massive change in behavior and mm-hmm. lifestyle.
0: Mm-hmm. Then
2: six months to a year later, they're back to the same behavior as mm-hmm. before. Mm-hmm. Even though they've been through this incredibly painful, mm-hmm. traumatic, almost life-ending event.
0: Mm-hmm. Six months to
2: a year out. It's like the pain is gone and they're back to all the same behavior that led to it.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, this is the human condition, right? I mean, it's, it's what we're up against. And, you know, when I have someone who comes to me, I'll give you a quick example. I, I have a a 52 year old woman who came to see me recently and she just said, I feel flat, I feel fat and I don't want to have sex with my husband. And I heard that I could just take testosterone. So why don't you give me some testosterone? I know you're a yoga teacher. I'm not going to do yoga just give me the testosterone prescription. I'll be on my way. And I, you know, I have to break it to her gently, probably not in that initial appointment, but over time that it's so much richer to mine this, you know, to take this symptom like low libido or feeling flat or fat and to decode it. Like, what does that mean for you? And there's a biohacker quality to it of, you know, how do we address nutrient gaps? How do we you know, get the right supplements that are really going to move the needle for you. But there's also a way that we shut down and don't connect to inner divinity. And that's what I think really changes physiology for the worst.
2: So deconstruct that a little bit.
1: <laughs> well, you know, you have deep experience in yoga and meditation, and I feel like my, what I've learned you know, over the years, I'm 47 years young now, I think you're around the same age, yeah. right? And so I, you know, I've really found that there's a grace that occurs that you receive when you're connected to your inner divinity and when you see it in others. And it it's, it's the game changer. Like it, it really, it creates this harmony with your hormones. It creates harmony with your your neurotransmitters, your happy brain chemicals, dopamine, serotonin, dopamine and serotonin went into a bar. You know, like, I think it's really important to be thoughtful about this. You know, I, I I like to think of it as this dashboard that you want to create and the organizational structure is inner divinity and it doesn't come from working harder, you know, doing more. It really comes from surrender and this deep listening
2: how do you break that to somebody? <laughs> <laughs> to you?
1: Well, not in the ever? first appointment. <laughs> right, exactly. It's like,
2: <laughs> give me testosterone, let's talk into divinity. Like, <laughs> That's not going to go well. Yeah. with some of the world's best meditation teachers to show you how meditation helps kind of smooth out some of life's wrinkles using cutting edge science and hard won experience to demonstrate the tangible benefits that meditation can have. And listeners of Good Life Project get 40% off. Just go to 10 percentcom dot slash good life. That's 10% all spelled out T-E-N-P-E-R-C-E-N-T dot com slash good life. And if you aren't ready to meditate just yet, but are curious how smart, ambitious people use meditation and benefit from it, well then check out the 10% Happier podcast. Either way, you can find it all at 10%.com goodlife. good life. Um, I totally agree with you. I mean, um, like I said, I'm, I'm, I, I, agree that there's, there's a place for all sorts of other more direct and specific, you know, like, this is what goes into you interventions. Um, but there is that. And when you meet people who are sort of in that place, you kind of want to be around them. You want to mm-hmm. know what it is. Mm-hmm. Like, what are you taking?
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what, what are you what doing? What pill are you on? <laughs> right. Like, what are you actually
2: doing? Cause I want to be like, you hey, know, it's funny. Like, a lot of people have come to me, a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of, Personal brand oriented entrepreneurs have come to me also, and they're kind of like, like, what do I do? How do I build this? How do I do that? What's the marketing? Where's the funnel for all that stuff? And and a lot was kind of like, like, first, okay, step, take it a big step back fundamentally. Like, are you living a really strongly aligned life? Mm-hmm. Um, and when you like, when you dial in that, you're like, using your language was divine
0: grace, inner divinity, inner divinity.
2: Grace. Um, you know, when you dial that in, when it, it really starts, you start to glow, you become a beacon.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know,
2: there's an energy that radiates from you
0: mm-hmm. at people's sense. Yes.
2: And there's no greater marketing yes. thing that you can do than to become a beacon for your message by just living it. And, um, people don't want to hear that either. <laughs> like, no, no, no. What Can I like, just two? buy it like, or outsource copy, it? Right? Like, I need a copywriter. I need a website. Where's the funnel? It's like, okay, that stuff is all useful. Just mm-hmm. like, you know, like nutrients. Mm-hmm. And, and, but there's something deeper. That's the core that even if you bolt on all the other stuff, you're still going to hit a ceiling yeah. you know, because there's something else at work here.
1: Oh yeah. I totally agree. I mean, I think marketing is a sacred activity. Mm. And when you do it from the place that you just described of attracting, magnetizing, that it just, it changes everything. It changes your, your actual physiology. It changes your subtle energetic physiology. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just a, a completely different way of doing it. And we have this tradition with capitalism of what I would call, you know, sort of too much of the immature masculine. And the more that we have this balance I'm going to totally sound like I'm from Berkeley here of, you know, like a higher feminine imbalance with are, higher right? masculine. Yeah, there, from right? Berkeley, yeah. So I, I really agree with that. And I, I think the, I think people have a detector for bullshit. They have a detector for the, the folks who are not in alignment.
0: Totally they can they. see
1: it. And so I think the people that grow like crazy in terms of, you know, their online platform, are the ones who really walk the talk. You know, Danielle Laporte is a beautiful example, and she's one of the ways that I first heard about you many, yeah. many, many years ago. And, you know, you you listen to her talk, you read her blog, and you lean in because it's so voraciously truthful. Yeah. It's so honest. It's so authentic.
2: No, I completely agree. And, I mean, what's so empowering about someone like her is that she lives it, but then she also, she takes the extra step which terrifies people, including me, which is that, you know, like that which is her soul she fully expresses to the world. Yes. That's really hard.
1: It's, um, it's vulnerable.
2: Yeah. Um, and because now you're like, okay, now if they reject what I write or what I speak or what I say, it's, it's me. Like, yes. it's personal. It's deeply personal and yes. I'm terrified of that. Um, and I think, you know, so many of us are wrapped up in that, me included. You know, I have a filter. I censor mm-hmm. for various reasons. You know, part of it, you know, that I, I have an almost teenage-year-old kid, and her and some of her friends follow me on social media. It's <laughs> a little bit This is a family but
1: show. Yeah.
2: Um, but, uh, no, still, but but fundamentally, it's just because, you know, like, there's, there's that moment where I'm like, I wonder how it's going to land. Mm-hmm. And it bothers me mm-hmm. that I still have that in me. And then I look at someone like Danielle. And it's just, you know, she's fully expressed. And I think that's part of the magic of it. A lot of people will live fairly in line. But then for people who actually, part of what you do is communicate that to the world, you know, there's there will still remain that gap in that you're not fully communicating. You're not being fully expressed. Like you're not sharing the true essence of who you are. And it's interesting. I think that can come sometimes back and create this um, disconnect, this cognitive dissonance, Mm. um, that people sense and that, that also you just sense about yourself, which leads to internal stress.
1: I think that's true. And I, I like that you refer to this extra piece of vulnerability, you know, kind of the soul bearing quality of Danielle's work. And I, I do think it's such a, um, differentiator for her. Yeah. And I, I feel like she has, she's so connected to that inner divinity and she shares it she doesn't overshare. She's really careful about that. You know, you and I both have kids and she has a son, yeah. but she's, you know, she talks about her son, but she talks about it in a very respectful, loving way. Yeah. She doesn't overshare.
2: So how do you connect to that sense?
1: Hmm. Well, so I'm a bit dopamine driven. <laughs> That's how I think about this, right? Like, so I'm, a, you're a junkie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a dopamine junkie. I'm also a recovering cortisol junkie, truth be told. <laughs> okay so uh, i know where this conversation is going so with dopamine you know i like the shiny new thing it's it's sort of my um my my kryptonite it's my it's my blessing and my curse Mm -hmm. so my way of connecting to inner divinity changes all the time now there's some rituals that i have you know i'm a big ritual believer it's something Mm -hmm. that really helps me i also have attention deficit Mm because i'm so hooked on that dopamine so it means that rituals really create structure and organization for my mind and for my day. Mm-hmm. So I always have a morning ritual, you know, I get up in the morning and I make some green tea and I sit for 30 minutes In mm-hmm. 30 minutes, you know, I've tried less, I've tried more 30 minutes is like the magic place for me with where I am in my life as a householder with two kids mm-hmm. and a husband
2: for me, it's 25,
1: 25. Okay. Yeah, so something really special about thirty minutes. It allows me to hear the voice, you know, whatever you want to call it—true self, God, source, mm-hmm. higher power. It allows it allows me to clean out my channel, like run the pipe cleaner through. Right. And sometimes it's Yin yoga. You know, I'll do some sacral releases. It seems like my low back. You know, sitting makes you dumb and fat, and mm-hmm. so I like a good sacral release. And sick. And sick.
2: That we, we now know. Also, and gives right. you
1: diabetes. Yeah. Right. So, uh, you know, sometimes it's just sitting crisscross applesauce and sometimes it's, um, using, I love the work of heart math. So I mm-hmm. use the inner balance app. Yeah. I like that accountability. It's, it's right. really fun for me to have, you know, my iPhone turned into a biofeedback machine. Yeah. So those are some of the things that I do. And then I have to come back to it. Like every time I put in my passcode on my iPhone, I take a deep lower belly breath hmm. So that I'm not panting like a rabbit, like I am right now.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned that because I so what I meditate every morning also, 25 minutes like clockwork, no matter where I am or what I'm doing. Um, but I use a timer app.
1: Uh huh. So, yeah, yeah.
2: So every morning there's like sort of like there's a, a micro battle. Oh yeah. Because I've got to like you know turn on my phone and then there's the timer app and then there's my email. Right. <laughs> right. So in a way, it's like this split second of of training. Mm-hmm. Every single morning, it's like, don't go there. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> go here.
2: Even if like, you're like, oh, I'll just check for a second first. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, 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 just don't do it. So it's like this daily conditioning of like, you no, know, first start this way. And at times I thought about removing, just saying, well, remove the temptation. But in an odd way, I actually think it's good training. It
1: is. To have it's it integrity and, and to, training. Right,
2: and to choose, to con- deliberately choose not to go there and to start your day in a very particular way. Other people, like people who, who talk about habit formation and ritual formation mm-hmm. will tell you, no, don't do that. Mm-hmm. You know, just make make doing the habit as foolproof as humanly possible. Take away every possible barrier or distraction so mm-hmm. you just wake up and do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I kind of, there's something in that, like, like forcing me to make a very quick but deliberate choice mm-hmm. to do this every single day. I don't know. it feel in some way feels powerful to me. And it's very much a habit a ritual for me at this point.
1: Well, I think, I think there's maybe two types of people here. And of course there may be more, but you know, at one extreme is people who like to tempt themselves like you do mm-hmm. with the email versus the timer and others who need every obstacle removed. Right. I'm more in your camp. I feel like the obstacles are the path. Mm-hmm. So, we know that if you wake up in the morning and you start checking your emails, like your productivity goes down right, uh, 30% or something. <laughs> and and it's also, I have a mentor, Brennan Bouchard, who says your email inbox is a convenient organizing system for other people's agendas. Mm-hmm. So I think when you really set, set that intentionality for your day and you go with the timer instead of checking your emails and you have your 25 minutes, it creates this cascade of grace that you carry into your day and that's so powerful it's so powerful and i think you know that it's a compliance issue because i think a lot of people wake up and they just are like oh i gotta check my emails i gotta do yeah. that and it really affects your day and it's uh i i have a one of my yoga teachers talks about architecting your day the way that you would architect a yoga class mm-hmm. and i know you you have years mm-hmm. of teaching yoga so just like you Set an intention at the beginning when you wake right. up in the morning, you know, Wayne Dyer puts his feet on the floor I don't know if you saw that movie the shift and Mm-mm. it's just like yeah. he puts his feet on the floor when he gets up from bed and he says Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hmm. And I love that. But it, that's not me. Like I don't wake up in the morning <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh, man, I'm <laughs> Yeah, I'm like green tea green tea, right? Green I'm awake,
2: but I'm not human until after I'm done meditating.
1: Yeah, <laughs> So, you know, you set this intention, then you figure out your apex pose. You know, for me, meeting with right. you today is my apex pose. You crescendo and then you decrescendo and you prepare your body for sleep.
2: Yeah, that's an interesting way of looking at the day. Um, I have to think on that a little bit, but I like it. Is it. I mean, it's
1: Anna Forrest, by the way. I should give her credit.
2: Yeah. Um, who I love. So powerful. Oh, um, so fierce. Yes, yeah, so, Her book,
1: Fierce Medicine. Right. Oh.
2: So fierce. Um, it's interesting, too, because when I think about... When I taught, um, I taught the hardest way that you could ever teach, which is I didn't, um, I didn't ever go into a class with a particular class in mind. You know, I improv the entire class, 90 minutes, 40, wow. 50 people in a room.
1: I don't find this surprising in the least.
2: <laughs> and I would walk, like, I would often have an intention mm-hmm. and I might have a little bit of a sequence or just a peak pose, you know, an apex energetic moment. But other than that, um, I would freestyle. I'm not in the beginning. It took me a couple of Mm -hmm. years to get to a place where. But I just really felt like, if I went in with an agenda, then and I start forcing my agenda, which I would do a lot in the beginning. And then you get 30 minutes into a 90 minute class, and you can make the analogy to your day, right? You go with a particular agenda. Mm -hmm. Like then the people in my class, if you're really aware, if you're tuned in, if you're present, you'll start to realize very often what they need. Is not what I was preparing mm. to offer them mm-hmm. at this moment in time. Mm. And I think you probably feel that in your day if you take that same lens also. It's a really interesting overlay you're making me think about. Whereas like you'll get a third into your day, you're like, what I had planned out doing, that's not what this day needs. Mm. You know, so I I learned pretty quickly. I was like, you know, I can stick to my plan and take people for 90 minutes and give them a decent experience. Or I can abandon it and I can just pay deep attention to what people need. Uh, on any given moment and then freestyle and do my best to give it to them. Mm. And, and that became the way to teach. And it's not an easy way to teach. Um, if you stopped me at any given moment during a 90 minute window and said, what's next, I couldn't tell you. Mm. It would just, it was almost like it would channel. Yes. (laughs) To me, because that's what I felt the room needed at any given moment in time. And it would change in the blink of an eye based on the feedback that I was getting, um,
1: this is so yummy. It's so yummy because that again, I would call grace Mm. that there's, you know, when I first started teaching yoga, I would like plan out the whole thing. Yeah. And like
2: every, like I would like, I I had cheat sheets. (laughs) I would keep a book (laughs) on my mat with a little piece of paper hanging out on the side. And I had a code where I could see like every single pose. And actually when I first, first started, I memorized the routines right. of like all the top teachers, right. and it would just rotate like sure. who I was on a, yeah. any given day.
1: Yeah, today's Shiba <laughs> Ray. right? <Tomorrow>. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> right, and it's it's not as authentic, right? I mean, there's a lot to be learned as you learn these different lineages and styles, but there's uh, there's like this forcing quality to it mm-hmm. of yeah. okay, this is my plan. We're gonna do it. It's gonna be like boot camp, you know? It's it's again that immature masculine quality where if you trust and instead receive the energy of the students that you have in the room and you intuit from their energy, okay, this is what I'm guided to teach, yeah. that's that's so good. It's, it's, it's so much better than um, forcing your agenda. I mean, it's, it's true in relationships. It's true in the yoga and class. That's why, yeah,
2: that's why I'm making the analogy when you say, like, if you looked at your day that way, I'm like, yeah, really? It's sort of like... It is the microcosm of how you want to experience, you know almost everything.
1: It's a different ecosystem. And it's also, you know, it makes me think a bit of the gut microbiome. I think the next 10 years of medicine is going to be all about, you know these Wait, bacteria.
0: fascinating. It's so fascinating. It's so, fascinating.
1: so fascinating. And I, I feel like there's this way that we've been forcing the worst food possible on our poor microbiome. You know, just like coming into a yoga class and you have your agenda of exactly what the 90 minutes is going to be. We've been forcing, you know, fake food, processed food, pizza, pasta, all of these things on our gut. And now we're so surprised that we're in so much trouble. And so we want to get back to, you know, this alignment in the sense of, oh, you know, these are the foods that really serve me. These are the foods that nourish me and really fill me with the kind of energy that I want to have. And... These are the foods that don't, and I need to stay away from them. Like that's, you know, even you asked about compliance a few moments ago. And to me, the greatest compliance comes from really tuning into that feedback loop so that you have a sense of, you know, how to how to feed yourself, you know, both uh, literally and metaphorically.
2: Yeah. And I think part of the challenge with that also is that we've taught ourselves to tune out Yes. You know, so sure. we don't it's like you ask people what they want in life but like on almost every level like what you know, what do you love to do? People are like what are you passionate about? I don't know. It's like, I don't I never buy that answer. Mm-hmm. And then, but then you can take it deeper also like the internal awareness, what's happening in your body. You know, like I make most decisions based on a visceral response.
0: Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm. Um I'll look at data, but mm-hmm. then fundamentally I'm like okay, what's going on when I think about this? Um but I think we we're so trained to tune out Um, and awareness of what our body is telling us, because most of the time it's telling us there's something sucky happening and Mm -hmm. we don't want to feel that. Mm -hmm. So instead of responding to it, we just stop listening.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, there's a whole physiology to this where I would say it's not some moral failing that leads to people tuning out. It's often a response to a traumatic childhood. Mm -hmm. It's a response to being steeped in cortisol for so long because you're, you know, you're not maybe uh, managing s- stress skillfully. Yeah. It's, um, you know, I think there's a lot of physiologic reasons for tuning out and for either, you know, thinking about the past or thinking about the future and not being in the present moment. But the, you know, the cool thing you were talking about like these visual and visceral ties to keep people in compliance and in these behaviors that create you know these upward uh, virtuous cycles as opposed to vicious cycles and i think that you can have these little baby steps that add up to major transformation when it comes to the visceral and the visual cues that help you to stay on the path mm-hmm.
2: so what would some of those baby steps look like
1: yeah i knew i was teaming that up for you <laughs> Well, maybe we could, we could riff here. We could do like a Mars and Venus baby steps sure. of what helps you stay on the path as well. Uh, so well, definitely my morning rituals really make a big difference. Yeah, I and,
2: think just the idea of ritual yeah, is, you know, like whatever, maybe like taking something to the point that it becomes rituals huge, yeah. at least for me.
1: It definitely is. And, you know, another one for me that I find super helpful and I do this, whether I'm insane, you know, I've got a book deadline or I'm flying back East or whatever it is. I, I make every effort to really connect with my daughters and with my husband first thing in the morning. And I, I can't remember who to attribute this to. I learned it through Oprah. I don't know if it was like a conversation with Gail or Toni Morrison or someone like that, but there was this idea that when you greet your child in the morning, You don't want to be like, um, you know, whipping the eggs and half distracted. You want to be like, good morning, sunshine. How are you? I'm so happy to be with you. Like this shine the love lights, shine the love lights. And it's so.
2: What if you have a teenager?
1: Oh, yeah. Stay away. Go away, mom. Oh, don't kiss me. Yeah, totally. I got a 14 year old. You have a 13 year old daughter. Uh Yeah, the nine year old still totally goes for it. And the husband, this is like, the husband totally loves it as well. That's awesome.
2: Perfect, but with signature hardware, it is beautiful. It's funny because I I've had um, when I write, you know, we are both authors too. So when I write, very often I've noticed that one of my like I'm good sometimes really late at night. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I was going to drop into that natural window, it would also probably mean that I was waking up a lot later in the morning. Right, and um, and so one of the reasons I don't do it is just it's literally because. I want to be there for the family, you know? So I, I, I know that it messes with my productivity. I know that, you know, I've got to rearrange things and I'm not as functional or productive as I can professionally, but to have that small window where, you know, like I can see my daughter, even if, you know, even if it's just short in the morning, mm-hmm. maybe every once in a while, I'll even walk her a few blocks to school, Yes. you know, that's magic. And especially at this age, um, it's funny, I've always wondered, uh, about whether we sort of get our time allocation wrong as parents you know the average parent works like crazy barely sees their kids um till the kid's out of college they they pay for the debt and then they peel back and then they're available for the kids when the kids don't really need them anymore
1: right right Whereas,
2: and I'm, I'm like i'm not gonna fault anybody like we live the way we live and we you know been trained that this is the way that that you do it um and we're freaked out that if we don't make the money now to cover it then you know, we're never going to be able to retire, which mm-hmm. is also based on the assumption that retirement is good because work is bad, which I have major issues with. Because um, I love what I do. But you know, what if you reverse that and said, "Okay, I'm going to work for as long as I can work because I love what I do, and I'm fully capable of making whatever money I need to make to, you know, like be okay in the world." And um, but but first and foremost, I want to be here while my kid needs me.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, you know, even if it's short windows of time. And then when they're out of the house, if I need to work harder, if I need to double down, do what I do, need to work five meters more, I'm actually okay with that. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and I would also say this is a better retirement account than uh, right, you know, working like a dog, burning yourself out to you know make your IRA as much as possible. Like there's there's a way that it creates more. Um, you know, love Love is such a game changer, like love, being grat- grateful for these people that are in your life, having a connection with them where you have clear and direct communication and you're not fighting because you're not able to do the self-care that you most need because you're working so hard to be able to retire. Mm. So I, I think that that's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it again creates this cascade of events that is so good for your health, so good for your heart. It raises oxytocin. And oxytocin is the best antidote to stress
2: so hard trained physician and we're talking about all this stuff <laughs> <laughs> curiosity is um, do you how do you operate in a world where the vast majority of your colleagues still um? don't look at the practice the way that you do.
0: Mm.
1: Well, I I turned the corner at a particular point in my career. And of course, many of my friends that I trained with in mainstream medicine have also turned the corner or they're still in mainstream medicine but they understand. You know, they knew me for so long that they understand the reasons why I do what I do. And they respect it you know i i made a difficult choice to leave mainstream medicine but i had to i mean I, I think the other choice was to become a bitter old woman you know just really unhappy probably on an antidepressant and i so i needed to leave and sort of create my own system but fortunately you know we live at a time where there's a revolution happening in medicine you know there's. The functional medicine arm, Mark Hyman, Jeff Bland, folks who, you know, really believe that we need to get away from the disease based model Mm -hmm. and we need to focus more on systems biology, you know, the set of systems that kind of organizes the matrix and doing root cause analysis and filling in the nutrient gaps and addressing mind, body, and spirit and not just the physical. So I'm really encouraged by this movement, the functional medicine movement. There's also integrative medicine, Andy Weil and his his group at the University of Arizona. Mm-hmm. So I, I feel like I've got brethren. <laughs> you know I have a community. Um, and the part that is frustrating for me is the patients that I see who suffer who, you know, maybe have adrenal burnout, and their cute little adrenals in their mid-back are just, you know, like doing their best to pump out the cortisol at the expense of all your other hormones, and they go to their doctor and explain what they're feeling, and they get treated with exactly the wrong thing. Because mainstream medicine doesn't really believe in adrenal fatigue. They believe that your adrenals are either completely fried, which is Addison's disease. You know, there's no cortisol at all at the party, or you're secreting too much Cushing's disease. There's no middle ground. It's black or white, either or. And there's so many people, you know, I would say like 90% who live in that gray in between. So I'm sad that those people often don't get the care that they need. And that's the conversation that I want to change because cortisol, you know cortisol, there's a hierarchy in the body and this main hormone that's made when you're stressed out of your mind controls everything. Like all paths lead back to cortisol. That woman with the low testosterone, like part of that conversation getting to the inner divinity is to say, let's look at your cortisol levels because I suspect cortisol's out of whack. It is in 91% of my patients. Mm-hmm. And you want to unlock the cortisol first because it's probably lowering your testosterone.
2: Right. So it, it's like you have to trace it back to the real root.
1: You want to trace it back to the root. And you also want to amplify the innate intelligence of the body, You know, kind of like the concept of positive psychology. It's much easier to amplify the positive than to come in and fix the negative.
2: So you start with the cortisol very often, and then that reverses back up to... How are you living your life to a large extent?
1: Well, the thing about cortisol that's kind of cool is that you can measure someone's cortisol. Like if you, when I was in my mid thirties and I was at this surrender point, you know, I was just like, okay, a glass of Zinfandel or Cabernet isn't working. Was
2: was there like an incident, (laughs) by the way, like was it, was it a gradual awakening? Was there like a moment where you're just like, oh hell no, like this, something has to change. Was there something that happened or was there some moment?
1: There was an oh hell no. So, the oh hell no was feeling this way for many years. So, working mom, mid 30s, fat, frumpy, frazzled. And I went and saw my primary care provider. And I can still remember, you know, I had one of those pathetic paper gowns on. And I'm like shivering, waiting forever, you know, for like 30, 40 minutes. And my primary care provider came in and I was explaining my symptoms. You know, I'm, I'm PMSing. I'm in couples therapy. I don't want to have sex with my husband and I'm angry all the time. And I just feel so stressed. And he suggested three things. He said, well, Sarah, it's simple math. Like if, you know, first of all, with the weight loss, you know, he wrote on this little whiteboard that he had in the office. I can still see it. You know, he wrote, Exercise more plus eat less equals weight loss. You know this. It's simple math, Sarah, which was humiliating and totally wrong. And then he said, why don't you go on this antidepressant? At the time, it was Prozac. And then he wrote another prescription for a birth control pill. He's like, it, you know, maybe it's hormonal. Why don't you just go on this birth control pill? And first, I was so frustrated that, um, you know, it, didn't, it felt like it missed the mark, that it wasn't addressing what I most needed. And then I got angry because I felt like millions of American women are being told exactly the same thing across the US and it is totally the wrong message. And I had a hunch, I was able to use that medical training. You know, I left there with my prescriptions, never filled them, but I had a hunch that my problem was that I was so stressed out. And so I decided to look at my hormones. I looked at my cortisol and it was three times what it should have been first thing in the morning and it was slowing down my thyroid. So I was gaining weight. It impacted this tango between estrogen and progesterone. So that, um, again, it was, it caused difficulty with weight loss and gave me PMS. So I, it took me about a month to change my cortisol, but that, that changed everything. And once I realized that I just felt like, we've got to change the conversation that we're having about Mm. cortisol and when you can measure it. My point was when you can show somebody, okay, darling, your cortisol is through the roof. we got to do something about it. That's a much easier way to say, let's work on this inner divinity along with these other strategies, these other baby steps so that we can get your hormones back into balance.
2: Yeah. So for you, you said it took you about a month to get your cortisol back balance. What did you actually do?
1: I did a few things. You know, I was running at the time. And so, you know, my doctor was like, run more. <laughs> and I, you know, this is part of being a cortisol junkie. I think probably during my residency training, I just, I had the set point of like a really high level of cortisol and anything less than that, I would be a little bored. Right. And so I was a runner. The answer wasn't to run more because running raises your cortisol. Mm-hmm. I needed to run less and I needed more adaptive exercise. So that's when I started practicing yoga more seriously. I actually learned it from my great-grandmother, but I didn't really wow. practice it every day. <laughs> and, uh, and I started doing Pilates. I, I started to, um, you could call it meditation. You know, I I believe in really a kind of a broad net when it comes to meditation. I think Mm -hmm. calling a girlfriend is meditation. Taking a hot bath with Epsom salt is meditation. I want, you know, everyone to have an a la carte menu of how they just turn off the monkey mind and kind Mm -hmm. of bump it up from the amygdala where you sense fear and danger to the prefrontal cortex where you're more resourceful. Mm -hmm. So I developed a practice and I also took phosphatidyl serine. Which is an extract of plant membranes shown to lower cortisol levels. Hmm. And that's what did it for me.
2: So there is this um, there's the woo woo side of you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but there's also the fierce, like biochemical, like endocrine oriented side of you. And that's the name of your book, The Hormone Cure. Um, so it's interesting. Um, you know, I guess it's really like using the ones back, and there's a whole systems approach where you're like, okay. Let's talk about um the divinity side, the meditation side of the yoga. Um but at the same time, you're not averse to saying we also need to change your chemistry and there's oh, some yeah. things that you can do and consume.
1: Yes, oh definitely. To do
2: that. Um what's interesting is uh so so let me ask you a question, which is how would the things that you might recommend to on a nutritional side or to consume um differ from a uh, pharmaceutical intervention or a drug mm-hmm. that would have, say, a similar effect on the sim- symptomology?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I I have a protocol that I use, which is based on functional medicine. And the protocol has three steps. So the first step, if you're talking about something like high cortisol, which is my main issue, my Achilles heel, I like to first fill in nutritional gaps and make the lifestyle changes that really make a difference with that particular hormone imbalance So for me, like the shift from running to more adaptive exercise helped me with my cortisol levels. And uh, the phosphatidylserine, omega-3s, helped to lower cortisol levels. So I like to start first with the nutrient gaps and targeted lifestyle changes, ideally that are proven in randomized trials. Mm -hmm. And then the second step, if that doesn't solve the symptoms, would be to take a botanical. And you asked about the difference between, you know, what I'm suggesting biochemically versus a pharmaceutical. And I believe that those are foundational. So step one, where you're filling in nutritional gaps and you're making targeted lifestyle changes, I feel like even if you ultimately end up on a pharmaceutical, you'll need a lower dose and you'll need it for a shorter duration if you do this groundwork. And I I think it's more compelling when you can say, Jonathan, I've got these five randomized trials that show that if you take that omega-3 that's in your refrigerator that you're not taking, and it it lowers your cortisol levels in these randomized trials, I feel like that's more compelling than just saying, yeah, you should take an omega-3, maybe a high-potency multivitamin, and you know stop running so much. Step three is to take bioidentical hormones, but at the lowest dose and for the shortest duration. And many of those are prescription. But I find that most people can actually balance their hormones with step one and step two. The other thing about botanicals and one of the ways that they're different than taking a pharmaceutical is that a pharmaceutical usually is a synthetic, you know, is devised in a lab. Some of them, I think, are life-saving. But many of them, you know, I think of, I'm going to go woo-woo here uh, for a moment. I think when you, when you meet the energy of a plant, of a botanical in the middle, so why don't we use rhodiola or maca as an example. Maca helps to improve libido in women who are perimenopausal and menopausal. When you take that herb and you meet it in the middle and you really need it, that's when it has the most profound effect. And I think it's harder to meet a pharmaceutical in the middle. You know, it's for people with depression, for instance, I don't think of it as a Prozac deficiency or a Lexapro deficiency. I think of it as, okay, you're probably low in vitamin B6, probably B12 because most of us don't absorb it or extract it from our food very well. How's your sleep? What's going on with serotonin and melatonin? What's happening with your circadian rhythm? You know, do you have this kind of sacred rhythm that you are careful about every day in how you architect your day? So those are the pieces that I think are really effective and it's also, you know, if you do a head of, head-to-head comparison of a a pharmaceutical like Lexapro versus rhodiola in someone that has high cortisol. It's not like I'm saying take the rhodiola and don't do anything else because there's this, you know, there's this integration that happens around taking the rhodiola, like the targeted lifestyle tweaks, the, Mm -hmm. the other um, filling in the nutrient gaps that I think is what makes it stick.
2: Yeah. It makes a lot of sense actually. So, um, so the name of this, project is a good life project Um, it's an exploration and you know we've been talking a lot about health uh, and seeing if we can fix things that are chemically off by with all sorts of different approaches to it when I offer up the term just on a broader scale to you to live a good life what comes up what does it mean to you
1: Mm. well I think I go first to the inner divinity because for me, living a good life is, is really being connected to it and to feel my own, you know, sometimes today it feels more like my best self, you know, my true self and to see it in others and to stay kind of in the now, seeing it in others. So for me, that's when I know that I'm on target. When I feel that, when I can see it in my husband at the end of the day, when I can see to my kids when they're cranky, when I pick them up from school and they don't want to do their homework, when I can see it in my friends and the people that I serve. So one piece that comes up is this inner divinity. And then another piece that comes up kind of related to it is service, which I think is quite paradoxical. You know, I, I seem to specialize in women who do too much, you know, women who over provide overwork. And I used to be one of them. And there's this paradox that when you're really tired and depleted, that service really makes a difference. Like true service from that place of um, connection to source, you know, you get pulled forward by it. It's not pushy, and it's what I think really makes a difference in the world.
2: Mm, beautiful. Thank you. My pleasure. So um, I've enjoyed the conversation. Me too. Uh, so, I'm Jonathan Fields. My guest today has been a uh, physician, best selling author of The Hormone Cure, Sarah Gottfried, signing off for Good Life Project.